probably want to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 11. We've been spending a few weeks in chapter 11. When I was uh, doing a lot of mountain bike racing, there was a guy who uh, I used to race with. His name was Russ, Russ Worley. Russ would come from San Diego and race. In fact, sometimes Russ would ride his bike from San Diego to the bike race. Um, Russ was really fast. And you knew any time that Russ was on the starting line, it was going to be a rugged day. There were going to be no easy wins that day. But I'll tell you the times when Russ was unbeatable. There were days you knew that, you know what, it's going to be a fight for seconds. The days that you knew it was going to be a fight for seconds, the days you knew that Russ was going to win, was the days when Russ came out here from San Diego and had no money to get home. See, Russ had to win the race that day to get the winner's prize money. It's not like he made a whole lot of money, right? Second place wasn't going to get him home. Third place prize money wasn't going to get him home. The only way Russ was going to get home is if Russ went one. And I'll tell you, on those days, Russ was unbeatable. It did not matter how bad Russ hurt. It did not matter how long the climbs. It did not matter how hot the heat. It did not matter how hard the rain came down. It did not matter how cold the day was. It did not matter how much he cramped up. It did not matter. Russ was looking for first place prize money. And he would not be denied. You may go by him once or twice. I guarantee you, Russ would hunt you down. (laughs) Russ would go by you. Russ was going to make certain that he got home. We need the book of Revelation and we need chapter 11, especially these last few verses. Because it is important to know that the end provides motivation for the present, just like Russ. Russ was motivated by the end. The discomfort and challenges and hardship that may have come in the middle of the race were nothing for Russ because he had his eyes fixed on something else. We need to know the end. We need to know the end because, folks, you may not have realized this, and maybe perhaps when you became a Christian, nobody told you this, but sometimes it's hard. It's really hard. It's hard to live a life of faith. And so it is important for us to understand the end. So here's the direction I'm going to go today, or at least I hope to go today. I'd like us to consider verses 15 through 19 in the book of Revelation of chapter 11. This is the second coming of Christ. So what I'm going to do is look at verses 15 through 19 and we'll, we'll poke around in them and try to draw out some um, significant passages and some significant um, relevance to us. And then what I'm going to do is I want to go back and put chapters 10 and 11 together. Because when we started chapter 10, I said, I really wish I could take 10 and 11 and just make it one sermon. Because really 10 and 11 go together as a unit. But I withdrew from the idea of putting chapters 10 and 11 together because, well... We need to be out of here at a certain... Eventually we need to leave here. And that much text would have us here for 
much longer than we might, yeah, weeks. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so let's go ahead and look at uh, verses 15 through 19. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, and sounds and peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. And so we pick up... This last section in chapter 11, and with the seventh angel, who sounds his trumpet. It's significant here because we read in chapter 10, verse 7, that, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, as he preached to his servants, the prophets. And so, the mystery of God, the sounding of the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God is complete. It is finished. It is done. When we think about what a mystery is in the Bible, we've described this numerous times, but just to remind you, or if you have not heard this before a mystery is not like something spooky nor is it like a Sherlock Holmes type of thing it is a mystery in the Bible is something that is previously hidden that is now revealed and Paul talks in the book of Ephesians uh, quite a lot about a mystery the Jew, Jews and Gentiles forming together into one people of God is a mystery the church Paul says is the mystery of God now revealed that there is no Jew, there is no Greek, there is no Gentile, there is no male, female, there is no bond, there is no slave, there is one people of God. God's been pointing to that all the way through, so that's what we mean by mystery. And in the day of the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God will be revealed. And when we look to chapter 10, we, uh, we, we, unpacked a little bit of what that means. So I'll just summarize real quickly what's going on. All of God's promises declared through the prophets are now fulfilled with the sounding of the seventh trumpet. All of God's promises are now complete and done. Perhaps we find some help in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52 and, and following. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The seventh trumpet sounds, and the mystery of God is complete. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The seventh trumpet sound, there were loud voices in heaven. 
your kingdom has come. The kingdom of the world has now become the kingdom of his Lord and of the Lord and of his Christ. The city of man, that is the world system, has now collapsed and those kingdoms have been replaced with the kingdom of Christ. This echoes the uh, back to the book of Joshua, which by the way, this isn't in your notes, uh, I'm kind of thinking maybe when we're done with the book of Revelation, I'll be Joshua. So anyway, just praying about it. Don't hold me to it. Anyway, back to Joshua. You'll recall that there was a city of Jericho that hindered the people of God from entering into the land of promise. Right? And it was on the seventh day, at the seventh trumpet, that the city of Jericho, the city of man, came down at the blowing of the seven trumpets, and the promised land was open. This is an echo, or that echoes this, where the seventh trumpet sounds, and now the cities of men collapse, and the new Jerusalem becomes established. God's place, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. All of the promises of the prophets have now been fulfilled. The city of man, this world system dissolves and Jesus Christ reigns. That's the end that we're hoping for. That's what we are looking for. And I pray more than anything that whatever burden or care you may carry today, you will persevere and continue to stand strong in the face of whatever may you may encounter because there will come a day. God's word is certain and sure when the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And we pray, Lord, your kingdom come as Jesus taught us to pray. This is the fulfillment of that prayer. Have you ever prayed, Lord, your kingdom come? Revelation chapter 11, 15 is the answer to your prayer. We see then, as the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And now, once again, we see 24 elders, and we encounter them back in chapter 4. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fall on their faces and worship. What more appropriate response is there to God reigning and ruling forever and ever than heavenly worship? That is the appropriate response. And we should Worship in anticipation of the promises of God being fulfilled. And they begin to sing an angelic hymn. We give you thanks, O Lord our God, the Almighty, who, who were, who are, and who were, because you have taken your great power and begun to reign. We give you thanks because you have begun to reign. So first of all, they begin their prayer with thanksgiving. How do you begin your prayer? With a list of I need and I want, or with, a, with beginning with thankfulness and praise to God. And the angelic host begin to praise God and thank Him for what He has done and who He is. And they identify Him as the Lord God, not just God, but Lord God. Is He Lord? It's one thing to say that I believe in God. It's a whole other thing to say God is Lord. That is, that he is boss. God, the boss of your life, these angelic hosts fall down and say, Thank you, God, our Lord. He is almighty. That is, there is nothing too difficult for him. 
Folks, if he can bring the cities of this cities of man to their knees and bring them to their end and establish his reign and his rule, nothing in your life is too hard for him. There is nothing that is too difficult. And we see that he is eternal. We see that he is Lord. We see that he is God. We see that he is almighty. We also see that he is eternal in that who are and who were. I'm so glad that God is eternal. Imagine if you weren't. Imagine if you were temporary like you and like me. Imagine if you lived in time like you and like me. You wouldn't know what tomorrow was going to be burning. When you pray, I don't know if he could answer your prayer. Our God is eternal. He knows the beginning from the end. God calls forth the end from the beginning. And God knows the end. And God also establishes the means. So what does God promise? God not only has made the promise, God has provided the means to bring it about. I do want you to note the amended triadic formula. How's that for a phrase? That's just to either put some of you asleep or snap some of you out of it. But I like this amended triadic formula because we, this isn't the first time we've seen a similar phrase in the book of Revelation. What have we been seeing? How has God been, and Jesus been described in the book of Revelation? The one who is and who was and is to come. Seen that over and over again. The one who is and was and is to come. That is, God is in the past, God is in the present, and God is going to come. Notice the amended triadic formula. Who are and who were. What's missing? The one who is to come. Why? Because God has come and established his reign. There is no longer a need for the triadic formula. The one who was and is and is to come. Because in this passage, he has come. And all of the promises of God are now being fulfilled. Look at John chapter 14, verse 3. Jesus says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Where I am, there you will be also. The seventh trumpet sounds, and that happens. They said... In Acts 1.11, they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Acts 1.11, done. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath of God, the wrath that is to come. Done. Who was and is. And so the angelic hosts begin to worship our Lord. That sounds pretty good, but then things get a little rugged as we proceed on in our text. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged. The time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. This sounds very much like Psalm chapter 2. Let me read Psalm chapter 2. It's one of my favorites. But this sounds very much like Psalm chapter 2. 
Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. And he said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in them. Why are the nations in an uproar? Why do they plot a vain thing? And so here the nations were enraged. The rage of the nations is provoked by the inception of God's rule through Christ. This is the one thing that keeps people from Christ. They do not want God to rule over them. They want to be Lord, they want to be boss, they want to be king, and they refuse to repent because it means bowing the knee to a sovereign Lord. And now the sovereign Lord begins to rule, and the nations rage. His wrath has come, and their rage is met by his rage. That disturbs some people that God would have, that God would be so just. We read in First Thessalonians 1:10, and to wait for his son, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. I want you to understand this, folks. The nations rage, and the Lord rages in judgment against them. But I want you to understand this. That there is you are not you do not have to face that wrath the wrath of God has been poured out upon his son Jesus Christ here's the thing the wrath of God against sin is coming the wrath of God against sin is to every individual who has ever lived like it or not the wrath of God will be poured out Here's our choice. It's not that the wrath of that God is going to turn away a blind eye from injustice. The, the reality is this. Who's going to bear the wrath of God? That's the question. Will you bear it? That's up to you. You can bear it. If you want to stand before this God and bear that wrath, then that's fine. Here's your other option. Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God on your behalf. That's the choice. Jesus, when he was on the cross, God poured forth his wrath against sin towards his son. And his son bore your wrath in his body on the tree. Now, will you stand before God and say, I'll go ahead and take it. That's fine. That's eternal judgment from God. See, because you can never pay the eternal price. So it will be an eternal judgment. Or you can say, Lord, I bow to you right now. And I would ask that Jesus would bear my sin, your wrath for my sin. He did so on the cross, on the tree, on Calvary. And Lord, 
make that a reality for me. Would you do that for me? I guarantee you right now, if you were to say that prayer, if you were to ask God to forgive you of your sin, if you would turn and bow the knee before Jesus Christ, that this day will not come to you. That day will not come. You will not have to be, be part of that day. the end of chapter 9, all of these various plagues came and said, and still they did not repent. And so, for those who still did not repent, we see that the dead are judged. This is what we confess. Sometimes we, as a church, read the Nicene, the Nicene Creed. And one of the things we, we say together as a church is we affirm our faith with the Nicene Creed. And we say this, and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. Do you believe that? The mystery of God, all of God's promises, including the justice for those who have brought disregard, who basically put to death the Son of God. The dead are judged, and Jesus will come with glory to judge the living and the dead. This we believe. And he will destroy those who destroy the earth. I believe we're to be good stewards of the earth, but I don't think that that's what this verse is talking about here. So, for all of our environmentalist friends, I believe that God has called us to be good stewards of what he's given us. Just don't use this verse. I don't think that's what he's talking about. Let me give you what I think is going on here. There's a word play going on here. There are two meanings to this, I, to this word to destroy. One is just that, to destroy. To bring to an end. There's another meaning, and it means moral corruption. It's used both ways in the Bible. I think this, this is wordplay that's used in both ways, that God will come and destroy, destroy those who bring moral corruption to the earth. I think that fits in better to the whole theme of the book of Revelation. Regardless, there will come a day where we will stand before God Almighty and He will judge the living and the dead. The question is, will you be able to rely on the sacrifice of Christ or not? Because, on the other hand, there will be those... His bondservants, notice how they are described as bondservants, the prophets, the small and the great, the saints. Those who fear your name, I want you to understand this, the small and the great will be rewarded by God Almighty. You do not need to be a Jonathan Edwards, a Charles Spurgeon. You do not need to be an Athanasius. You do not need to be any of those people. You can be an individual who works on the assembly line. You can work in a slaughterhouse. You can be a caretaker for kids or caretaker for the elderly that nobody ever hears. You're never asked to be on the speaking circuit. You never write a book and you never get a talk show. You're never on a radio program. And you will be honored in the presence of our God and King. He will judge the wicked and he will reward his bondservants, the small and the great, those who believe upon him. And then finally we see the very presence of God, the temple of God, 
And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. First of all, we should note that lightning, thunder, earthquakes, and hails are stock imagery in the Bible of the presence of God coming in judgment. Or the presence of God. You'll recall when Moses was on the mountain, Sinai, what were there? Earthquakes and fire and lightning and all kinds of crazy things. This is stock imagery of God being present. God is now present. The heavens open. And the temple of God, you need to remember that the temple that God established, like whether it be Solomon's temple or the second temple under the, the reign of Zechariah and Nehemiah and Ezra and those folks, or the tabernacle that was in the wilderness, that was a copy. All right? There's an original in heaven. These were copies. And now, the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of God is seen. So what does that mean? The Ark of the Covenant was the most holy object in the tabernacle temple. It was an object that was normally concealed. You did not get a chance to look at it. It was often called the footstool of God. So I want you to get this picture. God is in heaven on his throne and the ark was his footstool. Do you see this? God and heaven are connected. All right? God reigns from heaven but he is present with his people here on earth. It is also the place where the high priest would offer a sacrifice and sprinkle the blood of offering for the atonement of sin, that the sins of the people of God would be forgiven, assuring that God's presence would be with them and would not depart from them. This is the Ark of the Covenant. It means a whole lot more than that, but we'll just go with that for now. It is the place of sacrifice where atonement was made that would assure God's people of His continued presence. And now... The temple in heaven is open. His gracious provision of atonement is now on full display. You are forgiven of your sins. And now it is revealed. It's signifying that God is revealed in the fullness of his glory and majesty. God is no longer veiled. And the dwelling place of God is with man. Chapter 15, I'm sorry, verses 15 through 19 of chapter 11 is an awesome passage of scripture. It should cause us to worship and to rejoice that our God and His Christ will fulfill their promises and bring to pass everything that He has promised. What I'd like to do now is I'm just going to kind of put together chapters 10 and 11. And um, before we do that, I'd, I'd like to at least read the first stanza of a poem that I think is important from uh, William Yeats. And uh, it's called The Second Coming. It was written after the First World War. And um, it's a wonderful poem. But the first stanza is great. Turning and turning, the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, the blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. The question is, can the center hold? When 
evil abounds and when the world is ripe for judgment, can God keep His own? Can God keep His little flock as they stand seemingly defenseless in the crossfire of this turmoil that is going on around us? Can the center hold? We are called to proclaim God's truth. We are called to be salt and light in this world that is rushing unhindered and unfettered towards God's wrath. And can God keep His little flock? Can the center hold? What is the center of your life? I'll tell you now, the center of your life should be Jesus Christ, Him crucified, risen from the dead, and coming again. Will God keep His own? Go home and watch the news, and you're going to see Iraqis being crucified for Christ right now. Right now, today. Right now. Your brothers, your sisters, for the cause of Christ, because they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and will not compromise, are being tortured and put to death. Can God rescue them? Can God keep them? The church in Iraq, can God keep it? Chapters 10 and 11 give us a very positive answer to that question. Because God will keep his people from ultimate spiritual harm. I'm not saying that God will keep his people from all harm. Because throughout the history of the world, people have died for the cause of Christ. Because they will not compromise. The question though is, can their center hold? Can their trust in Christ hold? Will it keep them? Because what we will be reading in the book of Revelation, the moment the beast took the people of God to death, they are transferred into the kingdom of their beloved son, beloved son. And they are in the presence of God. Can the center hold? I guess it depends what your center is. But if your center is Christ, we still have to ask ourselves that question. Can that hold us? So, can God keep His people? Between um, the sixth and seventh trumpet, we see an interlude. And it demonstrates God's protective care towards His people against suffering, or in the midst of suffering. God keeps his people, even in the midst of suffering. A strong angel comes, descends from heaven, puts his foot on the land, puts another foot on the sea, raises his hand towards heaven. Heaven and earth and the land and the sea all are declared property of of heaven. He comes with authority and he begins to declare the coming of the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet is coming. What is the seventh trumpet? Trumpet when the mystery of God is fulfilled and the kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of our Lord and our and of His Christ. The seventh angel comes and declares the mystery of God will come when the seventh trumpet sounds. And then what does the what does the angel do? He gives John this little book, and I won't go into great detail um, into what we discussed about the contents or the identification of this little book, but I think we can all agree it is God's Word. And John is told to consume or to eat this book, just like Ezekiel was told to do when he was commissioned as a prophet to proclaim the, the Word of God. So John is given this little book to consume and go out and to proclaim. It is bittersweet to his taste. To his, um, it is bittersweet to his taste. It is sweet. Tastes like honey. But once in his stomach, it is bitter, folks. The word, the gospel that we preach, the word of God that we preach is bittersweet. 
It is sweet because it brings salvation, and it is bitter because man rejects it. It is often like we read in Paul who says, To some we are an aroma of, of life and a fragrance of life, and to others we're an aroma of death. This has to do with the Roman procession when a king or when a conquering general would come in to uh, a city. The, the hostages, the prisoners of war, were in the back. Now once they get into the city, their life is over. They're going to be... They're going to be executed. And as they are proceeding in, there's incense being offered. Well, if you're on the victor side, that's an incense that's sweet. If you're a POW, that's an incense of death. And when we proclaim the gospel, we are an incense of a sweet-smelling aroma to some, and we are the vile stench of death to others. This is the gospel. It is bittersweet. The message that we proclaim is sweet because it brings salvation. It is the power of God to salvation. It is bitter because men are condemned and judged by it. And John is told to proclaim this word to He is told to prophesy again many, to many concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. You'll recall in chapter 1, verse 1, John was re- to receive this message, but he wasn't to keep this message. He was to proclaim it to others who were also then to proclaim it. Folks, the gospel message is to be proclaimed. And so then in chapter 11, we begin to see the people of God proclaiming the message of God. And the God's people are protected during the church age as they proclaim the gospel that saves. But eventually, the beast rises from the abyss, kills the people of God. They are mocked and they are dishonored. And then God vindicates them. I want you to know something. People may mock you and condemn you and treat you harshly for believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, I will tell you this, God will raise you up and on that last day you will be vindicated. You say, but what about now? What about now? I'm saying, remember Russ Worley. Russ worked so hard, he didn't care about the now. He cared about getting done and finishing strong. He wanted that prize. He had motivation. And then finally the trumpet sounds. And the cities of men are destroyed. Judgment and reward. The dwelling place of God is with men. And all of the promises of God are fulfilled. Genesis 3.15, which we spent so much time dealing with, is now done. God is true and every man is a liar. Eden is restored. The new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth. Everything that God has promised is now being restored. We are to preach the gospel. We are to share the good news. And if the beast strikes you down, so be it. You will be placed in the very presence of God. And he will be your God. And you will be his son. And you will be his daughter. And there will be no more tears. There will be no more crying. And there will be no more death. And there will be no more sickness. And God will give to you the tree of life to eat. And you will live forever and ever with him. And you will see his face. Amen. Folks, this is the message of Revelation. It's not so much a blueprint about trying to figure out events. That we see something happen somewhere across the world and say, oh, where does that fit in? It's not important. 
What matters is that God is going to fulfill His promises through His people. And you and I are to be strong and stand firm like we saw in the very first, in the two chapters 2 and 3. The people of God were threatened with compromise and God says, stand strong and I'll reward you. Don't compromise. Stand firm. Proclaim the gospel. Don't back down. It's worth it. The prize money is worth it. No matter how long the hill, no matter how hot the heat, the finish is worth it. It's far outstretched. If we could get a glimpse of that, we would not be griping about our little teeny complaints. Let me conclude with this. Can the center hold? I would suggest to you that it is the only thing that holds. If Christ is your center, it is the only thing that holds. The the writer of Hebrews says that God is going to shake the earth one more time and everything's going to collapse except that which belongs to Him. Horrible paraphrase. Did you get the gist? Can the center hold? What's your center? If the center is yourself, you're in terrible, terrible trouble. It will not hold. If the center of your job, you're going to probably lose it one of these days. Is the center of the stock market and your investments? Good luck with that. It will not hold. We learned that. Is the center of this church? Is the center of me? I'll let you down. I tell you that all the time. Come here long enough and I'll upset you. Not because I want to. Because I'm just a regular guy and I make my fair share of mistakes. Jesus Christ is the center and the center will hold. And I will suggest to you, He is the only thing that will hold. He was the only thing that will stand. And when the world collapses around you, He will be the one who will uphold you by His mighty nail-scarred hands. So give glory to God. Give God the glory that is due His name. You know the end. You just read it. There's the end. And the glories of the end far exceed the trials of the present. Do not be deceived. There are many false teachings and many false teachers. There are many ways to compromise. Your flesh and the world and the devil will not come to you and say, commit some great horrific sin. You know better than that. But chip away at you little by little. This is why Jesus says, don't lust in your heart. Don't be angry with your brother. Because Jesus knows that adultery just doesn't happen just like that. Nor does he know that murder just happens like that. He knows these things happen after a a period of time being chipped away at, a little compromise, a little bringing in false religion, a little accepting false doctrine, and next thing you know, man, we're way off course. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens little by little. Let us be people who hold fast to the center. Beware of the sin that so easily entangles, and I want you to know this. Not to cause you to be afraid of the false teaching that may be out there or of compromise or of all of these things. I want you to know that God is greater than all of them. And if you will cling to the center, if you will cling to Christ, you will stand because Christ will stand. He is undefeated. So the glories of God far exceed the trials of this present age. Remember us. But more than that, remember Christ, the center holds. Let's stand and let's pray and let's sing praise to our God.